Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill. And as Ev said, if you are new, we'd love to, love to meet you. Again, for those of you coming to the table, excited to get lunch with you. And if you do want to jump into that, please jump in today. Um, it'll be a good time of uh, getting to know you and chatting about what God has called us to do as a church. If you have a Bible, go ahead, open it up to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, that is going to be towards the back of your New Testament, a small little letter there that we've been studying together over the last several weeks, and we will continue to do that uh, this morning. Let me just kind of reorient us where we are in the letter real quick as we jump into it. So if you remember, this letter, 1 Thessalonians, it's a letter that's written by Paul, Timothy, and Silas, these three guys who planted a church in the town of Thessalonica, which is in the Roman Empire. It's in the Macedonian province of the Roman Empire, huge influential city that they plant this church in. After they plant this church, they got ran out of town because it was really violent there. People didn't like that they were planting a church. So they run them out of town. And Paul goes on and he plants a few other churches in a few other cities, but he really was concerned for the Thessalonians. And so what he does is he sends Timothy, one of his uh, partners in ministry, back up to Thessalonica to go check on them, make sure they're doing okay. And so Timothy comes back to Paul with a report about how they're doing as a church. And the report is largely super encouraging. And so Paul just pens this letter of 1 Thessalonians to send back to them, to just encourage them in their faith, um, to to basically tell them, I'm just, I'm so thankful that you are thriving in your faith, especially in this context in your city of there being so much persecution. It just, Paul's saying, I'm just so amazed that you are continuing to to thrive. And so he writes this letter. But last week, uh, we started chapter four here in 1 Thessalonians. And this is typical of most of Paul's letters where he starts with some encouragement, he teaches some theology, and then he usually makes a pivot towards the end of his letter on practical matters. And so when Timothy brought his report back to Paul, he had all these encouraging things to say, but I'm sure Timothy had in his report a few areas of weakness that maybe this church needed to grow in. And so last week, starting in chapter four, we we began that. We began reading that part of the letter. And so last week, Paul talked about sexual immorality, And this reality that maybe some of this was going on inside of the church, we're not really sure. We have no specifics. But Paul talks about this idea of sanctification, that as followers of Jesus, when we come to faith in Christ, that God begins this process inside of us. It's not an instantaneous process, but he begins it where he begins to slowly change the desires of our body the desires of our heart to be more aligned with God's desires for us and the things that God says in his word. And so we studied all of that last week. And so this morning, as we jump into verse nine, we'll just go verse nine to 12 together today. We're gonna talk about another area that Paul wants to encourage this church in. Another area, maybe another area of weakness in some areas that Paul wants to 
address, and that's going to be the church's love for one another. Now, if you look in 1 Thessalonians and just do like a quick survey of the book, actually, this is commended by Paul as a strength of the church. Uh, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Paul is thanking God for the reality um, that uh, for their work of faith and for their labor of love. So Paul commends them for being people who work hard at loving one another. If you go to chapter 3, verse 6, it says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith, and love. And so one of the things that was included in this report from Timothy was this reality that, man, this church, they do a great job at loving one another. If you go to 2 Thessalonians, another letter that Paul writes to that same church, chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So again, Paul cites this as actually a strength in the church, that they do a good job at loving one another. But sometimes things can get hard. Sometimes... A conflict can erupt, or maybe a tense situation happens in the church. And although in general we do a good job at loving one another, maybe there's a few circumstances in the church or a few people in the church that we feel like are an exception. Like we do a good job at loving one another, but yeah, what that person did over there, that was messed up. I'm not sure if they can be a part of us anymore. Or that person over there, that's a hard person to love. And I think we have some evidence in these letters that there was a few circumstances, a few situations going on inside the church that probably were included in Timothy's report back to Paul to where maybe they thought there was some exceptions to this rule of loving one another. So here's what I want to do. I just want to jump into our text, verse 9 and 10. We'll start there. Let's see what Paul says. Let's understand what he means. And then let's think about why Paul includes this in his letter. So look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 and 10. Paul says this, now concerning brotherly love. So that word there in Greek is the word Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love. All right, so this is, you know, in contrast to other Greek words for love like agape, which is a more general word for love or, or kind of a, a love that serves. Brotherly love is familial love, right? It's the kind of love that you have with family members. It's a committed love. So he says, verse, where am I? Uh, chapter four, verse nine. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. That was the, the province they were in the Roman Empire. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. It's an interesting passage 
that we see here in verse 9 and 10. Uh, This is clearly something that Paul feels like he needs to address in his letter, brotherly love. It's clearly something that he sees as a strength in their church, that there's evidence that this is happening in the church, but also there seems to be a need to exhort them to continue to do that more and more to the point where Paul says, listen, guys, I... I don't need to give you instructions on how to love one another. Why? Because God already has taught you how to do that. So I don't need to spell this out for you. I don't need to break it down. God has already taught you how to love one another. And we really just need to pause right there and ask, well, what what does that mean? Like, what does Paul mean by that? How has God taught us to love one another? Well, the reason why Paul says, I don't need to spell this out, because honestly, this entire book gives us the story in the ways in which God has loved us And over and over and over again in this book, we are given the command to love one another in the same exact way that God has loved us. But let me just give you a sample. Okay, it's going to take a bit because it's just a small sample though. So for example, John chapter 13, verse 35, we read by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Right? I'm going to keep going. This won't be on the screen. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 1 John 3, 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. He's saying, you've heard this from the beginning. This is, this is like Christianity 101. We love each other. 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus, and love one another. What does it mean to be a Christian? You believe in Jesus and you love each other. That's simple. Verse 8, anyone who does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. 1 John 4, 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Evan read for us in his sermon earlier, Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I could just keep going and going and going. The Bible is so clear. If you have faith in Jesus, that means that you have understood and received God's love for you, that you in some way have comprehended the fact that God loves you and he's acted on that love in a very specific way. And the Bible says, great, take that same rubric and love each other just like that. Now that's easy to say, but when we really begin to break down what that means, it gets pretty radical pretty quick. We start getting into some areas, we go, whoa, I feel pretty uncomfortable with that. So so first, before we think of examples, I was trying to think, what is a passage 
that just is the most clear when it comes to explaining how God has loved us. And Melody read that for us earlier in our service, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11 is this, that what Christ has done for us is he has stepped out of heaven, he humbled himself, he put on human flesh, and from that place, at being someone who's better than us, being someone who is holier than us, being someone who's more righteous than us, being someone who's more powerful than us, what he does is he humbles himself and serves those who are underneath him by giving his, of his own life on the cross so that we could be in relationship with God, so that we could be in his family. And so here's what Paul says in the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul is saying is these things, like look to one another without, don't have any selfish ambition, but actually look to each person and see them as more significant than yourself. Doing that is loving each other in the way that Christ has loved you by humbling himself, coming here and serving us through giving his life on the cross. Now, in many ways, the Thessalonians were excelling in this kind of love for one another until some stuff happened that made it hard. We've all had relationships. We've all been in communities where it was easy to love each other. It was easy to serve each other. It was easy to count each other as more significant than ourselves until it wasn't easy anymore. And so there were some things going on in the church that made this really difficult. So let me, let me uh, I think, for example, if we went back to verse 6 from last week, one of the things that Paul indicates is that whatever sexual immorality that was going on in the church, it was against certain people. I have no idea what that means, but Paul felt like he had to call that out. Don't sin against each other in that way. There are other things going on in the church. It seems from chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, that the church needed to be exhorted to listen to their leaders, even when their leaders say things that they don't like. It seems like in chapter 5, verse 14, that there are many people in the church who were lazy and needed to be exhorted towards working hard. It seems like chapter 5, verse 14, that there were people in the church who were difficult and they needed to be exhorted towards being patient with one another. Uh, chapter five, verse 19 to 20, it seems like there were people in the church who were despising prophecy, meaning there were people in the church gifted with prophecy and that they weren't being given the opportunity to share that within the church. And so Paul felt like he had to exhort them in that. And so we, we have these situations. These are just some that I can see in the letter where it's starting to make things tense starting to make things hard 
in the church. Paul, yeah, I get it. We got to serve each other. We got to love each other. We got to count each other more significant than themselves. But what that guy did over there was messed up. So what do I do about that? Paul's going to say, yeah, serve him and count him as more significant than yourself. Okay, I got, I got it, Paul. But man, I really don't like what the pastor said the other day. I, I don't know if I agree with that. So, so what about that? Yeah, serve him and count him as more significant than yourself. Okay, Paul, but those people over there are lazy and they expect everybody to do the work and they won't do any work. So it's really hard to treat them like that. What should we do, Paul? Serve them and count them more significant than yourself. Okay, Paul, but those people over there, they always are picking fights. They're just difficult to be with. But Paul, what do we do with that? Serve them and count them more significant than yourself. Yeah, Paul, but did you see what they posted on Facebook the other day? I don't know what to do with that. Is that an exception? Serve them and count them as more significant than yourself. All right, Paul, but I don't know if I align with what they're saying over there politically. I feel like that could be dangerous. Should we allow that in the church? What should we do with that, that person, Paul? Serve them and count them more significant than yourself. And Paul's gonna just keep going over and over again. What about the person who's awkward and I don't know how to interact with them? Serve them and count them more significant than yourselves. What about that person who has a different view than me when it comes to sexuality, Paul? What should we do with that person? I don't know about that in our church. Serve them and count them more significant than yourself. What about the person who lives a lifestyle that I don't agree with? They make me uncomfortable. Serve them and count them as more significant than yourself. It's gonna keep going. Paul saying, I don't need to teach you how to love each other. God has done that through what Christ has done. I don't need to explain this to you. God has loved us in a radical way. He sent his son Jesus to serve us when we did not deserve it. As uh, Ephesians 2 and Romans 5 would say, while we were still sinning, even though we were dead, even when we were an enemy of Christ, he came and served us. And the text is clear. We are to love each other in the exact same way. No conditions put on it. The cross is scandalous. You really think about what the message of the cross is. It makes us a little uncomfortable. And then when we are called to love each other in the same way, it becomes even more scandalous because all the what ifs come. Well, what if this happens? And then what if we slide down that slippery slope? And what if we let this person near us and this and this and this? Loving each other in the way that God has loved us is a scandalous reality, no exceptions. And it's not easy This is otherworldly stuff. Let me just press on the gas a little more. Let me just talk to you about the demographics of the church in Thessalonica. Huge city, province of Macedonia, big trading town, lots of cultural everything going on in this church. You've got Jews here, you've got Greeks here, you've got all kinds of nationalities coming around in this city of Thessalonica. You've got rich, you've got poor, you've got powerful, you've got slaves. You've got people from all different kinds of religious backgrounds and traditions. And here's what's happening in this church. The gospel's going forth and it is arresting the hearts of different people. 
and bringing them together. So now you've got a church that's full of Jews, Greeks, and all kinds of other nationalities. You've got a church that has rich and poor, politicians and slaves, people from different religious backgrounds. The gospel has arrested their heart. They now have a love for Jesus. They're being tossed into a family and saying, now love each other as Christ has loved you. That's gonna be a messy reality because exactly what we learned about last week, the gospel doesn't change everything about you overnight. The gospel grabs your heart saves you, he puts his spirit in you. And then what did we learn last week? He starts you on the process of sanctification. He starts you on the slow process of molding your heart to be more aligned with the heart of God. Not everything changes overnight, but I think sometimes we can expect the gospel to change people overnight. Like I expect the gospel to change someone's political views overnight. I expect the gospel to heal their wounds so that they're relationally competent overnight. I expect the gospel to get rid of their addictions and their attractions overnight, that everything will change. I expect the gospel to turn people into people that I'm no longer uncomfortable with overnight. But maybe the most provocative statement of the morning is this, the gospel doesn't do that overnight. The gospel doesn't produce instant homogeneity overnight. It saves different people. It puts them on the process of sanctification where God is aligning and molding their hearts slowly to his, but it puts them into a family now. And they're given the call to love one another now. It's almost as if God's primary means of sanctification for us is this call to love one another. Is this call to love people who make us uncomfortable. It's called to love people who we don't know what to do with. It's called to love and fight to love one another even in the midst of hardship and conflict and tension that this is the thing that God is gonna use to mold our hearts to be more like Jesus. So Paul says, I don't need to explain this to you. God has taught this to you. Love one another in everything, no matter what, in the same way that Christ has loved you. Now, if we continue in our passage, it's gonna feel like he switches gears But what I think Paul's doing here is he's gonna help us to understand what this looks like in a community. Go go to verses 11 and 12. These will be our final, this is as far as we'll go in the passage. Verse 11 and 12, it says this. And, so let's back up so we get the context. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to love one another. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, some scholars say that this is a completely separate thought, that Paul has moved on from brotherly love, and he's now into a, just a completely different, detached command or exhortation. 
But I don't think that's what's going on here because the Greek here, it, it doesn't separate it into two thoughts. It's combined into one whole thought when you look at the original language. And so I think these exhortations here are connected to this exhortation to love one another with a brotherly type of love. Now, what this makes me think is that part of what's going on inside of this church in Thessalonica is there were some people living in this church and they were more dependent on people in the church and and dependent in an unhealthy way that they had stopped working. They had start kind of dealing with their own affairs and they started to expect other people in the church to pitch in and and make sure that they could live their life in the way they needed to live it, and that they were too dependent on the church. And so Paul's pushing back on this a little bit. We, we see other commands toward this in chapter five, towards not being idle and not being lazy. But if we put these two things together into one thought, what I think this entire passage is about is our expectations on one another. When I join a church community, when I'm part of a a, a body of Christ like this, a, a family of God like this, what are my expectations on myself as a part of this community? And what are my expectations on my brothers and sisters in Christ? And I think the expectation that Paul is trying to push us towards is that my expectation is to love and serve these people, to to count them as more significant than myself, love them as Christ has loved me, and I'll take care of my own needs. I'll deal with my own affairs. I'll make sure that I'm okay. Now, we gotta be really careful with that passage because that's a passage that could be abused really, really, really fast. And I've seen this passage taken out of context a lot to be used in such a way that, hey, we should be really careful about what we receive from the church. We should be, you know, mind our own affairs, live a quiet life, work with our hands, provide for ourselves, and not receive from the church. And so I think we're gonna be careful that we don't abuse this. This is not saying that we shouldn't receive the love and the service of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the very thing that they've been called to do for us. But what it is saying is that we shouldn't feel entitled to it. The book of Galatians, I think Paul talks about this a bit in Galatians chapter six. It's interesting. Galatians chapter six, verse two, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. But then in verse five, three verses later, Paul says, each one of you should bear your own load. It's like, okay, what you, Paul, what are you talking about? Well, if we go to the Greek, those are two different words, burden and load, two different words. The word for burden is, this is something that's too heavy for you to carry by yourself. You can't do it alone. So, so we gotta bear one another's burdens. We gotta help each other out. Whereas load is very much something that you can carry on your own. This is something that you can do. And so I think what we see here in Galatians is there's a difference between having humility to know when you need help and receiving that from your brothers and sisters in Christ and being entitled to it. Let me say that again. There's a difference between having the humility to know where you need help and you need the love of your brothers and sisters in Christ and being entitled to it. 
See, I think the picture that Paul's trying to paint for us in a church is one where everyone's ambition as we come in is to love and serve the other, to count each other as more significant than ourselves. But none of us are demanding to be loved and served. Like, that's the picture. Everyone walks in and says, how can I serve these folks? No one's walking in and saying, what can you do to serve me? That's the picture that Paul is painting for us. And that's a kind of community where every need will actually be met. And that's a kind of community that actually will be compelling to the outside. That's a group of people that no matter their differences, no matter the conflicts, no matter the tense situations, Everyone's walking in and asking, what can I do to love and serve these people instead of what can I do to receive? And so what I want us to do as we just close over the next couple of minutes is just examine ourselves. Let's sit in this a little bit and ask the question, what expectations do I have on my community and how might those expectations actually be a roadmap in my own heart, to how I can love and serve my community? This is a question I want us to sit with this week. What are my expectations of my brothers and sisters in Christ and how they would love me? And how might that actually be a roadmap to how I might serve my brothers and sisters in Christ? Let me give you some examples. I'll tell you, I was, this is the first one that popped into my head because I hear this all the time. I've been pastoring for 14 years and I hear this all of the time, and it comes from a good heart. But one of the complaints I hear all the time by so many people within definitely our church, other churches, other churches I've been a part of and ministered in is this, is no one reaches out to me. And there's been so many times where I've looked at a group and I'm like, I've heard several of you go, no one reaches out to me. You're all longing to be reached out to if only someone would go first, right? And so that's a deep longing that we have. We want people to reach out to us. We want people to want to hang out with us. We want friends inside of the church. That is such a godly desire and need. But oftentimes, I think what happens is because we expect others to reach out to us, and so many of us are doing that, no one reaches out. So maybe that's a roadmap to where you could love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You could step in and say, my expectation is to love and serve, not to necessarily receive. And so here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna reach out to someone. And that might be scary for me, but I'm gonna reach out. Because I'm telling you right now, I'm just telling you, and I've said this to some of you individually a lot, the very person that you're longing to reach out to you, they're probably longing that you would reach out to them. What would it look like if we were a community that came in and said, we're just going to reach out to each other to hang out, get some coffee, spend some time, become friends. It's a way that you can love your brothers and sisters in Christ and not expect them to do that for you. I look at uh, things like, you know, I, I reflect on the 2020, 2021 political season um, that was just so difficult for everyone. And I, 
I, as I reflect on that, I just realized, man, so many people felt under, uh, misunderstood and so many people felt angry. And this is not just our church, but church in general felt angry at the views of others. And so again, we want to be understood. We want to be heard. So how is that a roadmap to love others? Maybe I should go seek to understand and reach out to others. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what your conscience is saying. Tell me what you feel like the spirit of God is saying. I wanna treat you like a brother and sister in Christ and trust that you're thinking about this with sincerity. Let's do this together. And I feel like in 2024, man, there's the roadmap. We gotta love each other in that way. Reach out, seek to understand, not just be upset that we are not understood. Other ideas that I had in my head. I think about serving in the church. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest. I do uh, uh, performance reviews with our staff every uh, quarter. We sit down and we just check in. How are things going? And we talk about the job and all of that stuff and the things on our plate and how we can better serve you as a congregation. And one of the things that I always ask is, hey, what's the most discouraging part of your job? And you know, I, what we always get is, man, scheduling volunteers, scheduling volunteers, scheduling volunteers. Because we all live such busy, hectic, crazy lives. And so to come here on Sunday morning and have to serve, that can be really hard because we're all busy. But one of the pieces of feedback that we get a lot is, I'm too tired, I'm too busy to serve on Sunday. But the reality is that's all of us. And so again, what does it look like to step into a community and go, I'm here to love and serve. I'm here to bear burdens. And if the entire community steps in, everyone steps in, then everyone gets their needs met. Everyone gets to have Sundays where they can rest and relax. I was walking in with one of you, I won't call you out this morning, and you said, I'm not scheduled for anything this Sunday because this is a person that gets scheduled for everything because she'll do anything that we ask her to do. And I say, you sit down and you worship Jesus and you enjoy it and you don't feel guilty at all. I'm so glad that you get to rest this morning. So we all long for that. But then the question is, am I coming in and expecting others to fill all of that stuff, expecting others to be back with the kids? Or do we all step in and go, where am I needed? Because that's the picture. When everyone steps in in that way, that everything is met. Everyone is able to come here and worship on Sundays without serving. Everyone is able to do it in a manageable way. There's so many examples that we could come up with, but I just think that the question I want each of us to examine ourselves with, and I've been doing this for myself this week as well, as I've been preparing for this, is just, what are my expectations on my brothers and sisters? And how might that be the exact roadmap to where that I could love them and serve them? and count them as more significant than myself. Because it's hard work to love each other the way that Christ has loved us. But that's the very thing that makes us distinct in the world. You know, if you read surveys right now of Gen Z and millennials and younger generations who are leaving the church in droves right now, one of the things that they cite is I just see people, they're just looking at kind of the general 
portrayal of the church in culture, which I know is not always true, but I just see a group that just devours one another. And the very thing that Jesus is saying over and over and over again in scripture is, they will know that you love me by your love for one another. It's the very thing that makes us distinct and beautiful in the world. We are a group of people who are okay with everyone being in process. Everyone being in this process of sanctification, not expecting perfection in one another. And we're a group of people who make it our ambition to serve one another. This is the very thing that Paul saw as a strength of the church in Thessalonica and also an area where they could improve. And so I want to take that for us at Grace Hill and just go, Grace Hill, okay, I, I feel like this is a strength of ours, our love for one another, our care, our service of one another. And I also think it's something that we could say, let's keep digging in. Let's keep seeing where we can improve. Let's see where can we love and serve one another in the way that Christ has loved and served us. Let me pray for us to that end. God, every time we preach from this letter or any of the letters of the New Testament to the churches, I find myself so thankful that we have them. I find myself thankful that we have examples of churches that are not perfect, that are struggling with stuff just in the same way that we'll struggle with stuff. And we get your instructions to them through the apostles. We get your word to them and to us. So I'm just thankful that we don't have to try and figure out how to be a church together on our own, but that you have helped us through your word. And so I pray for Grace Hill. I pray that we would continue to be a church that loves one another in the same way that Christ has loved us to be a church that's elastic, that's able to weather conflict and tense situations and difficult people and hard cultural moments that everyone's trying to navigate and figure out how to, how to be faithful in the midst of. I pray that we would be a people that as we walk into these doors, as we walk into our community groups, as we think about our brothers and sisters here, that we would have an instinct, an expectation of how can I love and serve? How can I bear burdens? How can I count this person as more significant than me? And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would push us towards that end, especially when there's conflict, especially when there's tense situations. And that we would trust you in your instructions to us to love each other in the same radical way that Christ has loved us. So we ask for your help in this. And Lord, we pray that our love for one another would be a testimony to our neighbors and the community around us of your love for them. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.